Hey, Common Scientists, we're coming to you today with an awesome cast. We're pretty excited about it. It was recommended to us actually from one of our listeners and fans, Jordan Jackson. Shouts out, this one's for you. Uh, and it's on the First Amendment. So we're going to get into a bit of the nitty and gritty. We're going to talk a little bit about the First Amendment and uh, where, it, where it comes from, a little bit about United States history for those of you who are outside of the United States or for those of you who are in the United States and are oblivious, including myself to some of this, right? Like, I think United States government is over a lot of our heads, so we're going to get into just a little bit of that, but mostly focus on the First Amendment and some ideas surrounding it. So I'm going to kick it to Dre to start off with just a little bit of context where with the First Amendment. Uh, what is it a part of and where did that kind of come from? So the First Amendment is the first amendment of the Bill of Rights, which is the first 10 amendments of the U.S. Constitution which was essentially attached to the ratification of the Constitution, like directly after it was written, they knew, hey, there's also all these other things that are really important. And a lot of them, a lot of the first 10 were in direct response to how America, the colonies were treated by Great Britain. So we're only gonna be covering the First Amendment today, and that protects religion, freedom of expression, otherwise known as speech and press, uh, freedom of peaceful assembly, and then freedom uh, to petition. Yeah. Awesome. So, in any initial thoughts or other context that you want to provide for our listeners about the First Amendment, the Bill of Rights, um, or the Constitution? I think, so, Dre and I, before this cast, we're talking about just how the Constitution and the Bill of Rights uh there is much good in it in that it has been the longest standing government charter and has produced a lot of opportunity for a lot of people uh however there's a lot of interpretation involved and there's all sorts of uh different ways that uh, things have been interpreted in the past in a court of law or just if, if you ask anybody on the street, uh, be, people take language in different ways. Uh, so I'm excited to dig into a little bit of that. Um, but yeah, I, I think just that it is important to have some understanding of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and, and why we're all here. Yeah, agreed. And I think we, as common scientists, exercise a lot of free free speech. And I would be remiss to not recognize that that alone is a privilege. And I am grateful for the First Amendment for protecting my free speech thus far and for allowing us to engage in these common science conversations and to have disagreements, to be wrong sometimes, to uh, call out different sides of the fence politically, and also to remain safe. So I think it is an important topic and absolutely relates to, to common science in, in that way for sure. Definitely. It's, we're in an interesting period right now where 
there was quite a bit of civil unrest in the United States, still going on today, but especially last summer, when especially in the beginning of the pandemic, the George Floyd trial, and there was a lot of, including um, in response to the Trump administration, there's been a lot of laying things out on the table, laying things bare, saying things that weren't always socially acceptable, politically um, acceptable, some things for better, some things for the worse, perhaps. I'm mostly of the understanding or of the sentiment that kind of like, you know, the truth will set us free, like lay all of our ideas, lay our thoughts on the table. If that's truly how you believe, then let your thoughts battle out on the marketplace of ideas. And I do believe at the end of the day, most of the bad ideas will lose out like so many have in the history of our great nation, as well as many great nations before us. So definitely all for free speech. Definitely we do need to, at times, um, take some time to reflect upon what the First Amendment has given us, the blessing that is freedom to petition, freedom to assembly, freedom of religion, and freedom of speech, which so many other countries do not have. Yes, most modern ones do, but a lot of the undeveloped ones, a lot of the non-democratic ones definitely do not. So definitely very grateful for that. And I think a lot of people who like there's a lot of people on the side that the united states like kind of judging the united states and using their freedom of speech to attack some of our flaws and i think there's and then there's a whole another side of the spectrum that is really upset they're like because it's kind of the people who are like well then leave like if you hate our country so much it's like what do you mean you're not standing for the flag what do you mean you're you hate America, you hate this part of America. And I understand that because we are raised to be nationalistic and we to have a great pride in our country and we should to some extent. There are a lot of amazing things about our country, including the um, first, the Bill of Rights. But I think there is definitely kind of a disconnect there and definitely a clash where people are using, <laughs> we're using our First Amendment right to criticize the government that gave us the freedom of speech. So it, it is a really beautiful, complex dynamic yeah agreed and i think i think it will be helpful to outside of kind of naming the general uh the general protections listed in the first amendment i think just reading it would be would be helpful for myself and probably for our listeners and viewers it says congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So I think there's a lot there. There's a lot of power to that statement. Um, and yeah, you're right, Dre. It is this beautiful, challenging relationship because I am a person who would say that I mostly hate America. And I am super grateful for my First Amendment rights. Mm -hmm. And coming into this cast, we were just chatting like, oh, are you guys excited for the cast? I was like, oh man, I'm nervous about it because I have a lot of ambivalent feelings. So for those of you who are unfamiliar, that means like feeling in ways that kind of don't always align. And so, yeah, I mean, in a conversation about the First Amendment, I am pretty certain I'll contradict myself or like say something that goes back on something I said because I 
haven't found like an aligned clarity yet, I don't think. Mm -hmm. But that's part of common science too. Yeah, I I hear you, Lauren, as well in terms of the conflicting thoughts regarding the the First Amendment. I gotta say first of all, first and foremost, that freedom of speech is quite unique in human history for a society and like I think it is something that should be cherished and is incredibly va valuable but as Dre alluded to in terms of the these outsiders uh, potentially manipula manipulating the US because of our free speech uh, that's one challenge to it for sure uh, another one uh, in in the related to what you were talking about as far as the civil unrest would be how corporations in particular have kind of become these uh, arbiters of free speech uh, and like whether it be Twitter, YouTube, Google, the umbrella company of YouTube, but like these companies make deci decisions on what is allowed on these platforms and what's not. And yeah, I mean, I, I guess I've just been, I have, that's something that I would like to tease through mm -hmm. in this conversation somewhat as well as, is like what, what does free speech look like on those platforms? Is it possible? Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I am immensely thankful for the First Amendment right and that we can criticize mm -hmm. the state uh, and we can uh, try to find more truth as as a state. Yeah. Um, but I think there are digital technology in particular has presented significant challenges to the concept of free speech. Uh, being one a sustainable one for society. Yeah, I I agree, and I'd love to get into that more. Mm -hmm. I also like while we're just thinking about high level context, I think too there's a lot of areas that the United States does not practice the First Amendment as well as it could. And I think there are a plethora of reasons for that, right? It's super complicated. And there is this, because of the way our government is built, there is uh, companies that are super powerful. And then it, I mean, states have quite a bit of power and then cities have quite a bit of power. And one example that comes to mind, moving to the uh, Minneapolis school district, which is in the Twin Cities area, Minneapolis, St. Paul being the Twin Cities in Minnesota, and becoming familiar, a little bit familiar with some of the challenges in the school because I have applied to be a substitute teacher and found out that this year school is starting later to honor a um, 
to honor a holiday that's taking place right now that I can't think of, which is kind of sad, but needless to say, it's like a non-majority holiday, which is in and of itself like a bit of a problem that that's the way I think about it. But uh, it was recommended by a teacher that I, that I am close to that we should just move to a model similar to how some schools in New York practice where like a pretty much every major holiday like we hear of Christmas being like off for students is off for also like the Hmong people and people who practice Jewish culture or faith and so on and so forth. And I know that that's not practiced very well. And I mean, there just is a plethora of examples, I think, of whether it's social media or religion in schools or other areas where the First Amendment maybe isn't being honored as well as it could be. And there's a lot of power at play in those conflicts. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree. And there's, I mean, there's a huge issue with and a huge conversation to be had with like majority and minority because at some point the majority i mean it's gonna you can't really make a society for everybody in every certain instant of course we can going back to the city on the hill we can try our best to represent everybody give everybody a voice give everybody opportunity and i think we're far from where we could be mm-hmm. but and it is an honorable ideal but at the end of the day we really can't and I think to I, I think you're, I think to your point, yes, we could make it's not impossible to better incorporate other cultures and other religions specifically into the public school system. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, when it comes to things like freedom of religion or religious issues, so freedom of religion has two clauses, right? The establishment clause, clause which essentially says that the government can't establish a religion, so that's like the separation of church and state. That is like freedom from religion, mm-hmm. and there's then there's the expression clause, which is the freedom of religion is for you to practice. The government can't say, "Hey, you can't practice this religion," mm-hmm. right? Two really really important parts, and public schools are government funded, right? So they do have to take that into consideration to some extent. And of course, we've seen prayer be knocked out of public schools. We've seen the um, God bless and what am I thinking of right now? Oh, the <laughs> pledge? Yeah, the Pledge of Allegiance. We've seen that because that mentions God. We've seen a lot of things knocked out of the public school system, at least partially the due to... pieces of it. They don't say the under God part. Right. So at least, yeah, pieces of the parts of et cetera because of any sort of reference to religion or God. And I think, I don't know, I just, it, it is really a struggle to represent all peoples. And I'm, I'm, I just wonder, like, what would what would that look like? Would that look like some kids being out of school for a month to do this while other ones are in the school? Because at the end of the day, there's two things that have set precedent for how the Constitution slash Bill of Rights slash First Amendment is treated, interpreted, or whether it is kind of listened to or not. And those two big ideas are public interest and national interest. And when it comes to both national and public interest, that could possibly be such a, the idea of like incorporating all of these different stagnate or not stagnated, but um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like separated or staggered, staggered breaks for different cultures. That could be so detrimental to the public interest that public schools are trying to inculcate that it just 
unfortunately, it isn't something that we can institutionalize. But then, do we punish people for taking their? Right. If they're like, hey, this is this important to me, I'm going to take my student out for two weeks, even though it's mm-hmm. not Christmas break or whatever it is, it's not Easter, Good Friday, etc. I don't know. It's a good question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So put a pin in it. Hand it off to policymakers, or something, or you, common scientists. What about free speech in media? Uh, so I think that on the topic of free speech in media, I mean, there's media is is a broad uh, broad category in and of of itself, and I think that uh, the medium itself can perhaps govern some of the conversation like what you're talking about like do you do you publish or do you punish because of this or do you not uh like i think that online discourse in particular is is challenging because you you can't it's hard to communicate nuance uh like in in the form of a tweet and 140 characters uh so and we talked about how the constitution can be interpreted in different ways and these tweets can be interpreted in drastically different ways and so it's i mean it's just it's it's such a dance uh and i don't know what the answer is um but and but like did our our lifetime bans of certain people part of the answer Again, I don't know. Do you guys have any any takes on on that in particular? What was the question? Like the the banning of people from these platforms or deplatforming? Oh, deplatforming and cancel culture and stuff like that. It's it's really difficult because even as I was researching and seeing some of the landmark cases with freedom of speech like Hesby, Indiana, etc. Some of these interpretations that the Supreme Court justice, even though I can reflect back on them, it's like, oh that was I think that was the right decision. I think yes to so for example, Brandenburg versus Ohio in nineteen sixty nine uh was where there was a KKK member that said there might have to be some revengeance taken. And there was this court case saying like, hey, this is a threat. He shouldn't be able to say this. Right. He's infringing upon peace and our ability to like pursue our own happiness because he's inciting violence. And then the Brandenburg case and there ended up being a Brandenburg test, which has two parts where in order for this speech to be illegal and advocating like uh, violence, it has to, number one, be directed and inciting and producing imminent lawless action. So imminent means soon, like it has to be almost right away. And then two, it has to be likely to incite or produce that action. So it has to be inciting, clearly saying it's going to happen soon. And number two, the, we have to agree that, okay, this is probably going to get that actually done. It can't just be some idle, random, nobody's going to listen. And in this case, since it, there was no timetable, they were like, yeah, he kind of alluded to some sort of violence, but there wasn't a timetable, there wasn't a plan. So therefore, this is protected under the First Amendment. 
And that goes into, I mean, we've seen that with Trump at his rally mm -hmm. before. Um, and I know he's people are calling for some legal actions with that when he had that big rally. And he had he said a couple of things that might be interpreted as, hey, go storm the Capitol, bust people up, rip them out of there and, attack, and do all these things. Right. Was that January 6, 2021? Right. Mm -hmm. Just earlier this year. And people are, are really some people are saying, hey, that's just that's just First Amendment rights. Like he's not saying anything. Other people are saying, no, this is clearly advocating like imminent illegal activity so when it comes to social media which these are i think all of them are generally like they're private companies right they're they're owned by just ceos and stuff so it's not this is not a governmental thing this is not something that's under the federal or state law of the first amendment so they can do whatever they like to do so really it's what's being under attack is not the actual first amendment or freedom of speech it's the spirit of the freedom of speech yeah, so I just want to say they are governed by federal law, but the so the reason why deplatforming so the the analogy I heard is if you're in the room with somebody and somebody is causing a ruckus, basically, mm -hmm. like you can you can ask them to leave. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> But, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and yeah, so that's like kind of the idea is that you're you're not prohibiting their speech. They can take that speech elsewhere, mm -hmm. but you're taking them off of this platform. Okay. Uh, yeah, so that's like that's the idea I I have understood or how I've understood it. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for clarifying. But legally. These companies, they're not doing anything illegal, right? Because they're not, like you said, they're not prohibiting, they're not infringing upon anybody's freedom of speech. They're just saying, hey, you can do that, not here. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's it's still, like, the point is they're attacking the spirit of the free, of freedom of right. speech. And that's where, like, can the government come in and be like, no, because a lot of these companies and a lot of these founders, whether they're liberal or leaning left, a lot of them are taking kind of left-leaning left -leaning actions and really focusing on this alt-right in these extreme radical right people and deplatforming them at least that's the general idea i don't know what the stats are but that these are just the narratives that i hear spun by certain outlets and that's why there's and i think even if it was equal people would still be upset about it, and they should i think but it, are they actually doing anything wrong by deplatforming people it's their company right yeah i don't i mean i don't think so by law the challenging thing about it in my opinion is that some of these platforms dominate the way that people communicate like twitter is not just twitter like twitter exists outside of a company for many people like <clears throat> for many people twitter is like is their lifeline their window to community and communication and because of that i find the issue even more perplexing because it Twitter is not just a Google is not just a company, right? Google is a verb and Google is mm -hmm. and the same goes for Twitter and maybe not so much for Instagram, but maybe for Facebook people view it. I would say almost as much more so as a community, as their main outlet or an engagement route, I mean, as their window into the world. And those, I think, are all super problematic. 
for a lot of different reasons outside of the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. But I think that's when it's super challenging because these companies are larger than companies. They're larger than life. They're larger than governments. Some of these companies could buy countries. So yeah, no question. I think it's really perplexing, super challenging. Yeah, it is. It is super challenging. Here's a, another tidbit that if people are not aware, uh, so less social media related, but more traditional media related. So Jeff Bezos, we all know who he is, right? The world's richest man, at least he's been on and off with, I think, Elon recently. Uh, but he bought the Washington Post in 2013 and uh, turned the corner. So the Washington Post is a storied uh, American uh, newspaper and they put a lot of investment into digital and social media advertising so what kind of Amazon does well right uh, and so he carried uh, him and his I mean obviously team because he's only one man uh, definitely a rich man but uh, they uh, they there's a lot of investment in like social media digital advertising and then uh, technology as well. So one of their leading revenue sources now is actually a software that they sell, which I think is just, I had no idea. Um, but this company that is a newspaper primarily in terms of its like public facing appearance, uh, like has been I'm trying to remember which years exactly it is, but it turned a profit for four years running and it hadn't been not doing so. Before, time. for a long time, before uh, Jeff Bezos bought it. So it's, and then there's like also, I mean, so that's one side of it. And then there's the other side of it is that some of these employees are organizing to uh, like try to negotiate for uh, higher pay and are having difficulty with negotiating with uh, like the management at the Washington Post, which is kind of uh, a theme in, in Jeff Bezos's dealings with Amazon. But yeah, it's just this kind of intertwining of corporate interests and traditional newspapers that, uh, yeah, I think, again, uh, similar to the social media uh, challenges the the concept of free speech for sure because i'm struggling with the with the line of thought uh like i mean i just i think about we talk about the first amendment right and how that governs the federal government and we do talk about how the federal government does, their regulations do apply to these companies, yet these come, I mean, showing somebody the door on Twitter, like you said, it's this outlet that is so just pervasive in our society. Like, I mean, there's just so many different avenues where these companies have so much control over our media media and discourse that i mean you gotta think it's gotta affect i mean 
discourse uh, in general, but it's just, yeah, something that I came across in my reading. Um, and again, I don't know what the answer is because newspapers, the business model got pretty disrupted, but I think that like more, more independent journalism is, is always good for a, a free society. I agree. So staying on the idea of either deplatforming or cancel culture, if you guys had to give an answer, what do you think? Are, are these cases of people being deplatformed, is this in general the right, like an acceptable direction? Or is this like, no, we should condemn this as a public? I would say in general, it is, it is okay. And my reasoning behind that is that I don't think deplatforming is the problem in and of itself. I think the problem is coming from somewhere else. And I would probably argue that the problem is like living in a fractured, in a, in a society where truth is fractured. So because we live in a, in a society where due to the internet, due to search engines and um, I mean, Google and other, like, well, any search engine, due to the way that it's built and the way that it's built for you to see what is popular versus what is truth, we live in a world where, like, different people can live in different realities, right? If you are far left or far right, or if you are, I mean, a super strong vegan versus like a hunter, right? Like whatever it is, your reality can be very different than someone else's. And I think that in my mind is the problem. And when we live in a society where that is the case, of course there's going to be discourse that is really misunderstood and, and or understood depending on the argument. And of course there's gonna be scenarios where people are asked to leave the room, so to speak, using Aiden, your same analogy. And if in fact Twitter is your reality and your community, like I think you have a problem. I don't think Twitter has a problem. Hmm. So that's, that's my- So you would advocate for more people to either I mean, reduce use of Twitter or not entirely? No, not necessarily. Just that, like, if your identity or your tie to reality comes from Twitter or Facebook or, like, anything else that's a search engine, basically, I would say, like, so much so that you feel deeply offended when someone gets asked to leave the room. Mm -hmm. Like, if you get to the point where that feels deeply offending, like there aren't enough rooms in your world, like go find another room. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, and if Twitter and Facebook and whatever are your main rooms, 
like that's what I'm saying that then you need to check yourself like so I don't think you need to necessarily just decrease your media consumption as long as you have other rooms available as long as you understand Twitter is not my reality as long as you know that like Facebook is a search engine I've got to make sure to check in with my friends over beers as long as you are understanding that like the reality you see in the internet of things could be different than someone else's mm. does that make sense yeah i think for sure i think i mean it comes a lot of it like so what i hear is that we need to i mean awareness is the first step in acknowledging that the uh, acknowledging that these biases uh, exist in our what we are presented from a search engine and acknowledging that these might in fact just straight up be different than somebody else's like that knowledge in and of itself can help us or like we should take that and think more critically about the media we consume yeah i think that's one facet of what i was yeah trying to wrap wrap around it's a challenging issue well one pushback i have on that is i do agree with a lot of your sentiment on that the issue is that the room is the world that's the issue with these social they've grown they've gotten so big they've grown beyond what any of us would have imagined and they've hacked into a particular part of our psychology as human beings that there it's it's like the best and the worst creation in human history in some regards and i just think that because like your point about how these companies make enough money to buy countries they also have enough people to be like the third biggest country in the world second biggest country in the world Billions and billions of people are on these platforms. So when you're deplatforming somebody from Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, etc., in a sense, you're deplatforming them from the world because this is what the world is now. The world is electronic. The world is digital. The world is more connected than ever. So why, yes, I can walk outside and start talking to people. That's not how the world works anymore. Yeah, I think. One uh, approach, so I, I, backing up to, what was the name of the test that The you, Brandenburg test? The Brandenburg test. Like I appreciate tests such as that for maybe uh, determining whether or not content might be removed. I also think that uh, one thing I'd, I have appreciated is some of the media companies um, like YouTube in particular, whenever there's a, me a, a video that is on climate change, now they present the Wikipedia climate change, uh, like from a reputable source, like immediately below the video, whether or not they know, because I mean, there's just so much video on YouTube, right? Uh, whether or not they know what the content itself might be advocating, they still present. In addition, here is what like we as YouTube believe to be true. Uh, I think that that is helpful. A, a helpful strategy. 
uh, to still permit freedom of speech and permit that connection that I think is critical in, in the digital age. And then also try to alleviate some of the concerns of the, like we, what we talked about, the fracturing of, yeah. of truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that helps as I think both of you touched on now, like with these echo chambers where you're getting into these social rabbit holes and you're just hearing the same things over and all of a sudden some of these things that are kind of out there ideas seem very normal, very true. But if you have these companies and we hope that they're not acting as some sort of a tyrant, but it's like a some sort of social group, community, like the community of YouTube, the community of Facebook, mm-hmm. whether that just be the company, the corporate, or some sort of larger expansive group is contributing to, oh, like, this might be true, but also this many people, or like there's this evidence for this other idea as well. And that, per, I, I think one of the issues with something like that, and maybe I'm just kind of tangenting <laughs> off yeah. of what you were saying, one of the issues with that is a lot of those a lot of those things are coming with um, conspiracies and obviously now we see it a lot with vaccines and while I tend to agree with them, just because I and the scientific community tend to agree with a lot of these things doesn't mean we're right. We've been wrong before. So then I would feel like you would have to apply that to almost all of posts and videos. Like you would have to try to find, maybe once they get to a certain level like views or something, right? Certain um, impact or outreach, whatever they call it you'd have to attach some sort of contradictory argument to these things in order to try to help people battle the ideas, like I said, on the marketplace. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a challenge for sure. Uh, what was the, the movie we watched death to 2020? Lauren? Yeah. Yeah. It was, was it? Death to 2020. Uh, Did you watch it? No, never heard of it. Oh, it's a it's a mockumentary. Uh, so it's, <laughs> Love them. it's it's a comedy that is of the documentary sort, and uh, it's about everything that happened in 2020 uh, with a comedic spin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you might need to mentally prepare yourself if because 2020 is still recent, and there was a lot that happened in 2020. Uh, there is one scene where uh, they just demonstrate some of the uh, like alternate reality that other people see, like just everyone seems to be living in because of these platforms and mm. that, I mean, just seeing it in a like live uh, action kind of film uh, where it's in an interview form and you see the person who is like spouting things that just, I mean, do not jive whatsoever with my own world understand or understanding of the world. It, it, it just, yeah, it, it baffles the mind and makes me, I mean, just think about how important these sorts of conversations are and, and issues are, uh, yeah, as Lauren, you said earlier too, grabbing grabbing beers and, and talking it out with people I think is super valuable. I mean, there's been a number of times when you guys have called me on my crap and vice versa, but yeah, it's it's all, all important stuff. Yeah, I think 
you're right, Dre, though, that the issue is that these, that the room is the world, you said. And those sorts of comments or sentiments, which I think are true, true, most of what you said, nearly everything that you said, I totally agree with, which means like, you're right, you can't always just find another room because if the room is the world, like none of your rooms are gonna compare at all, not even a little, to what what today looks like, which is where some of my more radical ideas <laughs> <laughs> probably come because then I'm like, okay, well, I so fundamentally think that that's the problem that like, that maybe we shouldn't have the room. Like maybe Twitter should have limits. Maybe we are not to me meant to be this hyper-connected because it's like, it's, it's fake connection. Like mm -hmm. maybe that is the problem and maybe we need to aggressively look in a whole different direction. And I think people are really scared to talk like that because a lot of the human connection that we feel and a lot of the approval that we seek today comes from social media, right? The likes are what affirm my outfit, the whatever it is. And I would argue that a lot of that isn't real. Like a lot of that is it's a sugar self-inflating, right? It's a small... Uh, yeah, a small high that lasts only momentarily and it's fleeting and then it's gone. And yeah, I don't, I just, I think that's the problem. And I so fundamentally believe that then I'm like, okay, well then maybe Twitter is the problem. Like maybe Facebook shouldn't exist. Maybe we need to aggressively and drastically reconsider what connection looks like today and if we want global connection what that might look like yeah i think it's fascinating you bring that up because i think i think it was cal newport but don't quote me on this because i think that he it was either um him or another computer science guy who was discussing about the birth of the internet and how websites grew in popularity originally and how it grew from peer-to-peer -peer sharing. So somebody might set, email one person a link and then somebody might email you the link. And it was less, it was more... Uh, organic? Organic, yeah, compared to what I would view as like this, this like and virality that is fueled in these in a lot of these social media platforms uh his take on it whoever i was reading um <laughs> was that these social media platforms are more fragile than we think in that yes they're enormously powerful in terms of their uh, amount of financial re resources and in terms of like their their uh, variety of apps and things um, yet like in the example of Twitter if everybody 
deleted the app from their phone tomorrow. Like that would, I mean, what would Twitter be then? Uh, and like if more people decide to uh, seek more meaningful connection, more perhaps in-person connection, uh, individual connection, as opposed to the crowds, uh, like I think that there could be um, some organic regulation of the room, as you, as you said, as opposed to maybe uh, political ones. Mm -hmm. uh, like if more people start to realize or like, or start to consider that it's taking more than it's adding um, right. or, or taking too much. Um, right. Yeah, I think, I think too about what it, like when are instances that I want to have the freedom of speech. And I would say primarily like when I want to engage in meaningful conversation or maybe in conversation that I believe strongly in, which I'm hoping would also be meaningful conversation. I don't see that much meaningful conversation on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. And so that's the other piece of it that I think is a little, I mean, it's a little bit fascinating because like if the goal is meaningful conversation, do we care if anyone gets booted off Twitter? Like maybe, maybe not. But the other piece that is an even like complicates things even further is that the ability to rally and the ability um, to peacefully rally and to gather a lot of people to do that also is facilitated by many of these platforms in a way that no other connection or connector can. And like, like you said, Dre, if your stage is the world, if your stage is the US or a state, like I don't have access to every state email. I couldn't email everyone and say like, hey, I'm having a peaceful rally on this thing that I believe in. And so I think that too complicates complicates things where like, yeah, maybe everyone should have have access to Twitter or to whatever. And in that way, maybe it's wrong that anyone get kicked off because you've got to know like when the people are mobilizing. And I would never have thought of that until I did uh, volunteer work in Uganda. And every now and then the government just shuts off the internet because they're the people are getting too organized. And if you shut up the internet and everyone can no longer communicate, everyone goes home, which is also scary. And then the only other problem that I want to throw into the mix <laughs> is the issue of trust and mistrust in conversation. Um, I recently heard a functional definition for mistrust from Brené Brown. And it is this, when what is important to me isn't safe with you in this situation or really in any situation. I'll read that again. When what is important to me 
isn't safe with you in this situation or really in any situation. And I think in a society that has fractured truth and that has a lot of mistrust, also what's happening on these platforms like probably isn't valuable or as valuable as we might think it is. I told you guys, yeah. ambivalent. I have a lot yeah. of... Lots of lots of different thoughts, lots of di conflicting thoughts. Here's a quote by Frederick du Douglass, an abolitionist uh, during the Civil War, the American Civil War specifically. Mankind are not held together by lies. Trust is the foundation of society. Where there is no truth, there can be no trust. When there and where there is no trust, there can be no society. So, <laughs> when what's important to me isn't safe with you in this situation or in any situation, we lose touch with society. That's like a functional definition based on that quote and this. And it's like, okay, so. So maybe like social media is actually breaking society, which is not really a First Amendment question, but. And also not so comforting, but. Uh, well, I'm, yeah, I'm rather unconvinced that social media is breaking society. I, I think that social media is one of the clearest signs of an apotheosis of humanity it is who we are and yes it, there are some humans who are writing algorithms that are hacking our psychology but all in all it's it's a very human site platform etc and i think <clears throat> my issue with trying to end social media is speaking of frederick Douglass, it would have been a lot easier to free the slaves if there was social media if news could be disseminated by a small group of people that easily. It'd be a lot easier to bring awareness to any issue. And that's part of the reason why social media is depressing, is because so many of us are seeing how broken we are as a species. And that is not necessarily social media's fault, that's just us. And you guys are talking a lot about truth and mistrust. I don't whether social media is sowing the this, this, uh, seeds of distrust or merely just reaping the seeds that the government has been sowing for generations. I think there's an argument there. And I'm going to transition this into somebody I want to talk about. Are you guys familiar with Julia, Julian Assange? Uh, just from, yeah. Just a, things, heard social media? I've heard, <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard of them and I've... Yeah. So Julian Assange founded WikiLeaks in 2006. Mm, Wiki I'm familiar with WikiLeaks. Okay, WikiLeaks gained global notoriety in 2010 with the release of which, when Chelsea Manning released all of these like 750,000 documents reports from the United States government. Chelsea Manning was in the US military then she became some sort of high security person. She had access to all this information and she doxed it. In there, two of the important documents are the Iraq war logs and the Afghanistan war diaries. And in these, they 
have very clear reported factual documentation of war crimes that the U.S. was committing in the Middle East. So in 2010, so obviously Chelsea Manning's like, hey, this is not good. It's not the Baghdad airstrikes where we had Apache helicopters going through and shooting civilians in which two journalists from the Reuter International um, Journalist Company died. That's an issue. That's a war crime. That's an atrocity. And Chelsea Manning had a conscience and risked her life to dox that and send it to Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. And then he risked his life. So I'm sure I'm sure he had some understanding that he was at risk, but that should be freedom of press, right? He didn't dox it. He didn't. He just has information. He should have the freedom of speech, the freedom of press to print it or to put it out there. So Chelsea Manning for this, which many consider her an American hero, right? She's fighting war crimes. It doesn't like again. We talked about this tribalism. It doesn't matter if it's us who's doing it. Wrong is wrong. Right is right. So some consider her a hero. She spent she was sentenced to 35 years in prison. Then Barack Obama, seven years into her prison sentence, Barack Obama commuted her conviction. And therefore, I think it's like still on her record and everything, but she only had to serve seven years. Shortly after the wiki, that doxing, um, that whistleblowing. What do you mean when you say doxing? Doxing, like revealing private information or secret or classified information to the public. So after that whistleblowing, they shortly after that, the U.S. government charged or like started a criminal investigation into Julian Assange. So then he had to obviously he's an Australian guy, but I think he lived here. He had to move. He was in Sweden for a time where he eventually got accused of sexual misconduct, which some people, of course, believe that he did it. Many believe that it was simply a ruse to get him extradited back to America. So then he fled Sweden. He was in Great Britain. They essentially were, I think, collaborating collaborating with Sweden. But instead of going back to Sweden, where he would just get extradited, instead of getting extradited to Sweden, where he could extradite to the U.S. to serve his penalty for, I think essentially they were charging him. They essentially want to charge him with um, espionage. So essentially like spying, releasing military secrets that would threaten national security. And so then he found um, asylum in Ecuador for a couple of years. Eventually, the Ecuadorian embassy, whoever, police force, government was like, no, we're not going to do this anymore. And then they, he was arrested. And now for the last couple of years, he's been in prison, um, essentially just kind of rotting away in there. And there's a huge public outcry in many circles. A lot of press companies, freedom of speech um, supporters are saying this is a direct attack against the First Amendment of the United States. We cannot incriminate this guy. But of course, the government is saying he took part in releasing these secrets, and even though they were they were military crimes, that's still classified for a reason, right? It's, it's seven hundred fifty thousand documents that's could threaten our national security. So this is a huge argument, obviously, first and foremost, or many things first and foremost, for the First Amendment, freedom of speech and press. But then also, this is where, going back to, there's this idea of like natural interest where the government can decide, hey, this is such a big risk to our national security, we can just trample over these rights for the greater good. And then there's also public interest. So many are claiming, 
we pay taxes to our government. We vote for our politicians. We send our boys, our children, everybody into the military. We have the right to know what's happening there. So I am of the belief, free Julian Assange, he didn't do anything wrong. And we should have that information. And we should, I should know that my tax dollars are going to a government that commits war crimes in my name. Your guys' thoughts on that? I would say that I don't know enough about the situation. I mean, I think that all that it reminds me of is that reality is gray and there's so many complexities. Like, okay, I do agree that we should know and thus be able to hold government accountable that war crimes occur. Yet I also understand that there is, an, there is some importance to secrets uh, like to in the in the name of national national security and I think of I mean, for one, like how to make a nuclear bomb or like, I don't know exactly, but like there's, there's people, there is animosity that exists in the world and like there one, I mean, it's just, it's a conflicting, I can, I guess I can see, I can see two sides to it. I mean, obviously, because there are two sides to it. it. On the one hand, like, I think that I can't think of any, uh, like, more concrete examples as far as the national security mm-hmm. side of things. Um, but my gut reaction is that there is some information that needs to be and need to know uh, for our society to... Uh, be more uh, provide more of a safe environment um, for more people but I I mean I, I do yeah agree that like there should be more freedom of information it's just I mean it's just like I don't know enough about the situation to decide I guess which one way or the other um how i would lie in the case of so edward snowden um like he all did something similar where he released a whole bunch of documents and then now is living in russia uh and i i'm a little bit more familiar with his story and in his case I would say, oh, I mean, yeah, definitely we should welcome him back to the States and and give him the protection to criticize uh, and reveal uh, some dirty secrets so we can, uh, like you said, have this war war of ideas or or truth-seeking, as I've called it in the past. Uh, But yeah, so I guess I just don't know 
enough about it, but I, I do see the two sides for sure. What about you, Lauren? Definitely. I mean, I see both sides also to the issue. I think in the specific case that you presented without knowing a lot of, a lot of more, a lot of more, a lot more information, I would probably, I would probably disagree with your sentiment, Dre, and I don't know enough information. And I think for two probably two main reasons, which one kind of isn't a reason because it's not the reality we live in, but like one, I would say if war crimes are happening and they are and they have and they do, someone should be held accountable for that. And it should not be the job of so-and-so to leak it in order for our government to be held to like a moral standard that we've decided on. Right. But that's not the reality we live in, unfortunately. So that would be like one reason. And then the other piece of it for me that I can't really detach my personal experience and feelings associated to or from like from the scenario but is that my dad served in Iraq and there was an instance there was a hypothetical instance where information was leaked while he was gone hypothetically, and her, like friends' lives were lost. And I just remember, hypothetically, I, I could imagine hearing about that and just being like rocked that the taxpayers' dollars, who you are risking your life for and away from your family for and missing birthdays for like didn't also protect your friends like that someone decided they were above the decisions that had been made to leak however many documents that like may or may not have costed lives and like I can't detach that story to like an answer for you. And yeah, because of that, I think I would, would disagree. But like, yeah, of course war crimes should be tried. And like, if those two documents were the only documents, like, of course that person should be liberated. And maybe there's an argument where like, it was a quick upload and she feared her life and whatever else. And so she could only leak the X number. I mean, I could, I could conceive of an argument where she maybe could still be like set free. I, yeah, it's just, it's a challenging There's issue. 
Yeah, it definitely is. There's one, um, I mean, thank you for sharing the hypothetical story because yeah, I mean, I think it's a revealing hypothetical, uh, in, in the context of this, uh, question and conversation. Uh, there's a, a principle in IT where you give people the lowest permissions, uh, lowest, like, users. You give users the lowest permissions uh, possible that they can still achieve their job or complete their tasks. Um, but also, you don't give them so many permissions that they it becomes a risk where, like, so say you you give somebody administrator permissions where they can make changes to a company database or whatever else and they don't actually need them well that's one more point of entry one more like location where people could uh, get into the system and cause damage to the system and so the connection I'm now drawing to uh, this question and conversation that we're talking about is uh, like I think leaking can be valuable in instances. I hope that there can be some, like perhaps, perhaps they put on, again, I don't know enough about the Julian Assange situation specifically, but I think like putting on this like hat of, oh, what is the minimum amount of information or like privileges I can release to the public that reveal the war, war crimes or other like atrocities right. yet do not put like people's people at risk um, whether they be service members or otherwise like I think like perhaps that again that's I guess some form of self-censoring which uh, loops back into the whole First Amendment thing but I think that like perhaps yeah like trying to figure out what is what is enough information to release to to expose the wrong so that they may be, may be rectified without also uh, exposing too much that there might be uh, mm -hmm damage caused to people yeah i mean it's a it's a hard question and yeah and maybe you need to release x number of documents for people to really realize like holy crap those two documents had to have been real because they're accompanied by these other 70 whatever it was yeah but, i don't know yeah. yeah, it was 750,000, but oh. that, that was Chelsea Manning's docking, doxing, mm -hmm. not what uh, Julian Assange actually posted on WikiLeaks. Mm -hmm. Another thing to remember is that Chelsea Manning was sentenced to 35 years, then commuted after seven years. So Chelsea Manning is free, oh, yeah. but they're still trying to convict Julian Assange, but he wasn't the one who got the information from them, right? Chelsea yeah. Manning was the one who stole it. Oh, he and just it, put it and on he just he just hey, I have this information that I think it's in the public's best interest. This is for the good of the Commonwealth. Yeah, that's a helpful uh, distinguisher and mm -hmm. reminder. And in 
like with that reminder and that context, I think, yeah, that seems like a little crazy that if he's not, like he wasn't the responsible person in the first place, it seems a little crazy. And I think too, in the context of like whistleblowing and I mean, people have to be protected. I think of Karen Silkwood and the plutonium um, that was being used at a, a big, a big plant. Now I'm trying to recall something that I did no research on common scientists for this cast, <laughs> but, uh, she was just an iconic character because she figured out that this plutonium was causing damage, like health damage to workers at a plant and came forward and whistle blew. And, and there was a big case, Karen Silkwood versus, I don't recall the name of the company, but she ended up winning and saving a lot of people's lives because of it. So wow. there's gotta be a balance between the whistleblowers being protected, absolutely. And information being protected, but generally there too, like that is also within the interest of the general public. Well, common scientists, the first amendment, it's kind of nuts. Thank God we're protected. Uh, but there are some twists and turns. There are a lot of questions and there are a lot of areas for you to do some more common science research to figure out, uh, what rights are you thankful for? What first amendment rights can you practice today and tomorrow? And maybe how can you tap into more truth and more connection in your daily life? Hey, common scientists. Hope you enjoyed the cast. Thanks for investing in common science. We hope it brought as much value to you as it did to us. To learn more, smash the subscribe button and visit our website, commonscientists.com, where you can read our blog, join our email newsletter, and follow us on social media. Finally, if you like what we have to say, you can absolutely support us on Patreon. We can always use more support. You can navigate there also from our website, commonscientists.com, common scientists with an S, so that we can continue cultivating a community of common scientists.